Hello, I'm Angus from Medibis, and we're building a four-part podcast series around medicinal cannabis. Our aim is to bring you educational material from a scientific perspective using only reliable sources of data. We aren't medical practitioners and we're not giving out medical advice. What we are doing is filtering information from multiple sources so that you don't have to. We do hope you find this information interesting and of course we'd love to hear your feedback or questions in the comments section at any stage. We'd also like to thank you for taking the time to listen to us share our knowledge and our passion about all things medicinal cannabis. So this is Phyto Compounds. In this episode, we'll be discussing the cannabis plant and the compounds produced by the plant and how they're being recognized as powerful medicines. We'll also be defining the different varieties of cannabis and why this is important, along with plant health, terpenoids, flavonoids, and some other ideas around phyto compounds in particular related to cannabis. Today, we're talking with Evan Stevens, Chief Scientific Officer at Medibis, and Christy Hunter, our Marketing Manager. So I'd like to start us off by asking Evan, what is a cannabinoid, a carotenoid, a flavonoid, and a terpenoid? Can we call these phyto compounds? We absolutely can call all of those phytocompounds. Phytocompounds really just means compounds that are coming from plants. Generally, the phytocompounds that we are interested in are the ones that are having a health benefit for people that are taking them. So there's different classes. So for example, carotenoids are actually within the larger family of terpenes or terpenoids, and flavonoids exist within a family called polyphenols. Now, cannabinoids are somewhat different. So some people have said that cannabinoids are polyphenols, but, but that's not true. Cannabinoids are very much their separate class and they're fairly unique to the cannabis plant. Yeah, so medicine from plants isn't a new thing. Why do you think there's so much noise about cannabis? And can we demystify this a little bit? Yeah, so there's a long history of plants being medicine. So from herbalism in the early days, a lot of that has turned out to not be very valuable, just folklore basically. But there's also some aspects of, of, of different plants and herbs that have turned out to be backed by science and be very valuable. Some very famous examples, for example, aspirin comes from salicylates. So that starts off with a plant base. Also, wormwood uh, in the 70s, it was discovered from Wormwood that there was a very potent anti-malaria compound in there. So today's anti-malaria drugs, they come from that plant. It's called Artemisia annua. And that actually led to a Nobel Prize. It was many years later. It was awarded, I believe, in 2015. But there was a Nobel Prize there. Another one is the Pacific yew tree. So this is a, a really tall conifer tree that grows in, in the cold forests of Canada and northern USA on the western coast, on the Pacific coast. And people discovered a compound called Taxol. And it was learned that Taxol had very interesting anti-cancer properties. The only problem was you couldn't farm the tree because it was so large and it was extracted from the bark. And if you remove the bark from the tree, then the tree wasn't very happy and would die. 
And then so medicinal cannabis is just another example of amazing plants that have these amazing compounds inside of them. So I think there's an opportunity to briefly make the distinction here around pharmacognosy and other traditional plant therapies. I know that you that you said the herbalism is largely folklore, and I'm sure that there's people that will disagree of with course. that. You know, ancient cultures relied on this before science and found it to be quite reliable. But like you say, the the way that we apply modern science by testing and proving and reproving and producing data and making it evidence, making it evidence-based, peer-reviewed, making sure there's no bias, wasn't associated with those traditional methods all that long ago. But let's be clear, that doesn't mean it didn't work, right, for the people at the time. So what we're saying now, and I think, you know, there's a little bit of this still going around with cannabis, it's got this historical perspective, but the way that we're looking at it now is pulling it apart and treating it like, well, like wormwood and, and like any modern therapy, you have to be able to prove that it works. So I think that's that's one of the things, that, one of the reasons maybe that people are getting excited about cannabis again, because it's not just herbalism with with no data. It's quite, yeah. it's something actually quite different to that. Yeah, so I sort of see three levels. So there's the I won't call it folklore, but there's the the older arts, so things like herbalism and alchemy and things like that. And then more recently, we have pharmacognosy. So to just define that, that's basically looking at what we can get from natural products that's going to be beneficial to human health. So that's the study of these things. But then we have really determined science and clinical trials is really the third level. That's where we're looking effects across a very large population and determining um, how effective these things are. So there's certainly a lot of plant foods and, and plants that aren't generally considered foods that have very beneficial compounds in them. But then the question is about what is a therapeutic dose? So if you had to eat two kilograms a day of something to get a therapeutic dose, well, then that's not very effective. Yeah, well, it's not really practical. Exactly. But that's one of the benefits of modern cannabis breeding programs is that we are getting high concentrations and it's fairly easy to achieve a therapeutic dose. If, if anything, we actually need to be careful that people aren't having too much. And that's what we see with, with the recreational dose, for example, where people are getting a psychotropic effect. So that's not what we want unless someone is dying from cancer or you know has a very very serious condition we want to have you know very moderate doses so they're not feeling psychotropic effects but they're getting the medicinal benefits yeah and i think that ties into the regulatory framework that was established by the ODC the office of drug control around medicinal cannabis and and determining THC as a schedule 8 and CBD as a schedule 4 it brings it into, into this structure of needing rigorous control, needing rigorous data. It's basically because it's, it's Schedule 8, the same as any other medicine. So I think that's, again, one of the distinguishing factors from other plant medicines, let's say. Not all of them, but certainly this idea of it being a herbal remedy 
of some sort. As soon as you go and make it a Schedule 8 drug and you have all of this framework and it's uh, governed and controlled by the TGA, then it's absolutely medicine, in our opinion, which is good news because it it's slowly taking the stigma away of it being this, you know, ritual, ancient, herbalistic, trying not to, you know, isolate certain groups of people, but the stigma that's associated with cannabis as a, as a recreational drug, you know, jazz yeah. cats and all of that kind of thing. But, it, but if we look across the population, it's only a certain number of people that think that way. A lot of people, when they're looking at cannabis, they don't see the ritual, historical, ancient side of it. They actually see it for what it is, and they don't see a stigma. I think the most important thing when we're considering cannabis as a medicine or cannabinoid therapy is we need three things. We need efficacy, we need safety, and we need consistency. Yeah. And I guess you wouldn't see it as a stigma. As a scientist, you, no, only, of course not. you only see the world in ones and zeros. <laughs> Maybe not ones and zero. <laughs> I, I take the point. I take the point. So, Evan, what do you think about synthesized cannabinoids? That's a good question. So, there are a number of companies. Some are basically using a chemistry laboratory to make it uh, in test tubes, in flasks and beakers, not just test tubes, but um, make it in a chemistry laboratory, often with you know specialized chemistry equipment. And then there's another category of companies who are using genetically modified organisms, which may be genetically modified bacteria or genetically modified yeasts, things like that, where the genes for the enzymes from the cannabis plant have been cloned in to the bacteria or the yeast. And so they've equipped that that microorganism with the capacity to make cannabinoids in like a fermentation system in the same way that we brew beer they brew up these microbes and then they extract the cannabinoids from the microbes so those are the generally the two ways to make synthetic cannabinoids now both have their pros and cons some companies will try to tell you that it's much safer and and I, I just have to disagree with that with all the regulations and the quality controls that we have on cannabis cultivation and the only thing I take away from thousands of years of use is its safety. People don't die from cannabis. Very, very few people have any negative side effects of, of concern. So the safety thing is fairly equal. And there's now, certainly a big a big group of cannabis supporters, maybe from this, you know, recreational background that would be avidly against anything GMO or synthesized. Abs yeah, absolutely. The people that support this plant really adore it and they really admire it for what it is able to do. And, and I think that's, you know, that's part of what we try to do when, we, when we're making medicine or extracting compounds from the plant to make medicine. We don't need to fiddle with what the plant's doing. I think what we need to do is understand how it all works because it's actually quite complex. Yes, there's hundreds of different phytocompounds yeah. in the cannabis plant. I mean, in simple terms, that's more simple than if we went into it in a deep dive, but there are those that really care about the whole plant and there are those that 
don't care where their medicine is coming from as long as it works. So, Angus, let's define medicinal cannabis and its family of plants. So, hemp difference, sativa, indica, and ruderalis. Yeah, it's, that's a good point, Christy. So, cannabis sativa is the genus name for the plant that we're talking about. Now, within that, there are quite a few varieties. Some people ask, why aren't you just growing hemp? Hemp is easy and cheap to grow. Yep, sure. It absolutely is. Hemp is has been bred for many applications, but producing these phytocompounds that we're using for medicine isn't uh, historically one of them. So there are the same phytocompounds in hemp, but they occur in very low quantities and, and uh, in a small magnitude. The most common thing that we see from hemp and that gives it some gives it a little place in this story is is that it produces CBD. But you have to grow so much of it. So when we'll go on later to talk about where these compounds are in the plant, I'll get Evan to explain that. But certainly that's one of the big differences. Hemp doesn't produce big calyx, calyxes like, like uh, cannabis sativa does, uh, like cannabis sativa sativa or cannabis sativa indica does. They're also closely related to hops, which of course is used to make beer and somewhat related to the rose plant, the nettle plant or the mulberry plant. This is, uh, this is the hemp plant. So it's not a blanket rule and there's always exceptions, but there's some commonly accepted conditions around the composition of the natural chemical, uh, chemicals in different varieties of, ca- uh, varieties of cannabis. So based on their composition for medical applications, the plants that we're interested in are primarily indica and sativa. So cannabis sativa sativa is commonly aligned with the more uplifting strains due to the chemical profile, and cannabis sativa indica is more associated with calming and sedating effects and therefore is, is more often used for, for indications that include pain, uh, sleep, and, and sometimes anxiety. So ruderalis is the other lesser known, less popular variety, and it's generally not considered to be medicinal on its own. However, it does have some interesting genetics regarding its propensity to flower and the way that it flowers. So, And, and so sometimes it's called a, a, an auto-flowering variety. And so whilst it's not high in medicinal compounds, and in particular the ones that we're, that we're talking about here, I don't want to alienate uh, ruderalis lovers inadvertently. And, and if I have done, please let me know in the comments. I'm looking forward to hearing about that. But it's, it's sometimes, so when you, when you crossbreed, you're trying to grab a, a, a characteristic from one plant and a characteristic that you like from another plant and combine them to make like a, a super duper version. It's standard uh, breeding. So sometimes people are using ruderalis to hybridize with another a strain or another another variety to get it to autoflower, to bring on that ruderalis's um, flowering properties. So how about the strains? The genotype, the phenotype, land races, hybrids, cultivars, chemovars, and other very confusing terms, Evan. <laughs> yeah, so some people would find that that sort of list of different terms confusing. So it's really simple. We'll just go through it one step at a time. So the, the genotype is really about the genetics of the plant, what we call the genome. But the genotype can be different amongst different 
cultivars or varieties without actually showing up as a difference in the physical world. So the difference in the physical world is it's really, or, or the way the plant presents in the physical world, that's called the phenotype. So it's the phenotype that's really important, even if a plant has different genotypes, unless that presents as a different phenotype. No one really, apart from scientists like me, no one really pays too much attention to the genotype. Now, land races, they're varieties that have really never been domesticated or commercialized. They're pretty much the same out in the wild as they were a thousand years ago or more. Now, hybrids, they are when different, so they're the opposite of land races. That's when people have deliberately taken plants from the wild, they've domesticated them, and they've started a program of crossbreeding. And so as Angus was just saying, they're taking some genetics from one variety, adding them to genetics from another variety, and ending up with a hybrid. And these days, there are literally hundreds and hundreds of different hybridized strains, and some people call these cultivars. But more recently, the scientific community has started looking at these things as what they call chemovars, where we're really looking more at the chemical composition of the plant. Because Angus is completely right that sativa is generally a more uplifting strain. So that's generally true, and that's why most people consider that as sort of accepted knowledge. But in actual fact, there's, there's instances where sativas go against that rule and where indicas go against the rule that they're more calming and sedating and good for pain and good for sleep. That, that's generally a good rule, but again, there's always an exception. So that's why people are starting to move to an idea of chemovars, where we actually, what we care about most is not the morphology of the plant or the shape of the plant or whether we're calling it cannabis sativa sativa or cannabis sativa indica, but what is the chemical composition and as a, a company that's producing medicines and is very focused on those three pillars or the th those three points of efficacy, safety, and consistency, then it absolutely stands that our primary focus has to be on the chemical composition of the plant and ensuring that the medicines are the same each time and they're effective, they're doing their job, they're safe and so there's a whole lot of quality control, quality assurance steps that we have to go through to ensure that we're achieving all of those outcomes. Yeah, so we're talking about profiling. So the cannabinoid exactly. profile, That's right. the terpenoid profile, and you can break the plant down through analysis to its constituent parts. That's right. And you can see how much THC that particular phenotype, let's say, or chemovar, or wh wh however you, you classifying where you're selecting it from out of your breed, out of your production cycle. Yeah. How much THC is it expressing? How much THCV? These are all of the phyto compounds that we're talking about inside of the plant. Yes. How much canaflavin A, canaflavin B, which are flavonoids? The expression of the terpenoids using so using mass spectrometry. This is how we can see in detail what the chemical composition of the plant is. And it's very interesting to us. It's interesting that 
we observe and, and acknowledge that there's a, a common uh, understanding that a indica, for example, is more sedating. But what we're particularly interested in is why. Can we compare, because we want to be able to say, this is, we, we know this is a generally accepted effect. And so if you're having problems with sleep, if you're having problems with, with some form of anxiety or some condition that requires the, medi- uh, the medicine to be sedating, then as scientists, we don't want to say, oh, well, yeah, everyone reckons that Indica is the way to go, so we're going to go that way too. Absolutely not. We, we want to have a look at the chemical compound, at the profile, and say and do a comparison. Is this one more sedating than this one? Yes or no? Why is that the case? Let's do it on 100 test subjects. Let's do a double-blind clinical trial and make sure that the data that we're collecting is robust, it's been peer-reviewed, it's unequivocal, and then we can say, okay, this is why this one is more sedating. So if a prescriber has a, a scenario with a patient where they need more or less, then we can actually moderate that with the medicine. So these two are both sedating, whether it's flour or oil, but this one is a lot more so, and this one is a lot less. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about profiling. That's the reason why we're talking about these. That's right. It's an essential step because talking about phenotypes, two plants can look exactly the same, but have completely different chemical composition. Sure. So as a grower, a grower cannot just look through his production facility and know from looking at a plant. We need that scientific analysis to be able to ensure that we're providing the right medicine for the right people. So, Evan, tell us about Sensomia. That's a good question, Christy. So, it's spelled Sensomilla, but some will insist that it's Sansomia. It really depends what country you come from. Sans meaning without and Mia meaning seed. So, and, and that's exactly right, Angus. So, it's, so the, the cannabis species is divided, generally speaking, into male plants and female plants, like many other plant families. There are instances where you can have hermaphrodites, where a plant is both male and female. There's also examples where genetically you can have sex reversal. Again, there are exceptions to the rule. Generally speaking, you have male plants and female plants. So with these male and female plants, obviously the male plants are providing pollen and the female plants are accepting the pollen. And so if they become pollinated, obviously they create a seed and the seed is formed inside the calyx. How far, we've talked about this before, how far can that pollen travel? How far away does or it Or a very long way. Yeah. Uh, it depends on environmental conditions like wind. In a high and, wind? Oh, many miles or many kilometers. What are we talking, 20? Oh, I don't have the exact data. <laughs> I haven't measured it. Okay. Yeah. I would say easily 20. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. Yep. In a high wind. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, so the seed is formed in the calyx. Now, if the males are not around or the plants are held within a, you know, a somewhat contained facility that prevents any pollen from getting in. As ours are in a growing facility. Absolutely. You, you absolutely don't want 
So we use multiple methods for that. Obviously, there's a controlled environment system, there's a glass house, there's screens on the areas that that do allow ventilation, there's screens, and then the other thing is... That, yeah, there's HEPA filters for air going in and there's positive pressure. Yeah. So it's preventing things from coming in because the pressure is pushing everything out. Sure. So those are generally the methods to prevent pollen from getting in. And then coming back to the female plant, when the female plant does not get pollinated, the calyx swells up. And so the buds become more dense. The cannabinoid levels become more concentrated. Now, in the wild... This is a great evolutionary tactic because generally the plants are quite happy to die off each year if they give off seed. But if they don't get seed, then what they want to do is produce as many protective compounds as they can. So they don't get eaten. So they don't get eaten. They can survive environmental stresses. Harsh sun, harsh cold. Exactly. Yeah. And they can survive until the next season and hopefully become pollinated the next time around. So there's a real functional reason rather than just the visual appeal of a swollen calyx. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is the bud. We're talking about, you're talking about the buds. That's the layperson's term for it. Yes. Yeah. So to encase the seeds, because that's obviously where the seeds are produced as well. And if they don't produce seeds, they get bigger, they expand, they puff up. That's right. Yeah. So this is is the the condition of sensomia that we want. The reason, because where those calyxes are swelling up because they don't, uh, they haven't been pollinated, that's where the highest concentration of these phytocompounds are produced. So for the plants, it's a survival strategy. But yeah. what the plant doesn't know is if you swell up, it, and we're going to cut your head off. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I apologize to the plant lovers. <laughs> Evan Stevens is his name. Please direct your comments in that direction. And look, you know, you can keep, we can keep them alive, right, if you wanted to. It is to. possible. Sure. Yeah. So you could harvest half of a plant and you can actually put a plant back into a vegetative state and regrow it. Uh, From a commercial operation point of view, it's actually more productive and efficient to just start with new clones and keep your production line going in that fashion. Yeah. Uh, But but yes, it it is absolutely possible to, to reverse the season, put them back into veg and regenerate them for many years it's actually quite possible it's much like the human cycle you know the plant grows up and and is harvested but it has offspring in the way of clones absolutely you you keep the life cycle going actually yeah and the genetics and the genetics yeah sure so what's the story with terpenes Terpenes. So terpenes are really, they can be called terpenes or terpenoids. It's a very, very large and diverse class of phytocompounds. There are some studies that suggest that some of these terpenes are medicinal. Again, we would come back to what's a therapeutic dose. And for me as a scientist, I'm not interested in one study. I'm not interested in two studies. I need to see a very large body of evidence before I can start to believe that something has truly valuable therapeutic potential. What we can absolutely agree on already is that terpenes are often responsible for the aromas, the flavors 
of not just cannabis plants, but foods, foods in general. So, for example, limonene is associated with citrus. Beta-caryophylline is associated with uh, pepperiness. And we can find those things in fruits and vegetables and herbs and spices. But we also find them in the cannabis plant. Yeah. In concentrated levels, limonene is also quite a powerful solvent. So you can buy it as a a pure limonene liquid or relatively pure limonene liquid, and it's a very powerful cleaner. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's available commercially. You can buy it and you use it. You can melt your, plastic with it. You can. Be very careful <laughs> spraying it on plastic. Great at cleaning your um, your oven. It cuts through grease like n- nothing else, but don't spray it on plastic surfaces because yeah. <laughs> they will dissolve. This isn't a, an ad for limonene. No. So really, I think the point there is is what we're talking about is the, the ratios of the expression. So exactly. in a small amount... It adds this lovely aroma, this flavor. Perhaps it's got some therapeutic benefit, like you're saying, but we don't really know. We know that in a super high dose, you can turn it into a solvent. Well, same so with with oxygen, right? Yeah, I mean, anything at, at excessively high levels can be toxic. Sure. Yeah. So terpenes, very interesting. We love them. Not a huge body of science to back up their therapeutic efficacy just yes. yet. As much as I, I'm a scientist focused on phytocompounds, I'd love to believe that we can use these things in the future for some medicinal capacity. But until the evidence is at a significant volume or a sufficient volume, we just can't go down that pathway. Now, in cannabis plants, your terpene levels typically maybe 2 to 3%. But we can sometimes see, in particularly good genetics, we can see terpene levels up to potentially 6% or more. Which is pretty high, right? It's very high. Yeah, and that, that's all of the terpene, that's the whole terpene profile. Yes. Not one particular terpene expressing at 5 or 6%. Well, I don't, yeah, I don't so think I've seen that. You could see, and let's be clear, there are hundreds and hundreds of terpenes. And most of them are in the decimal places we're talking most of them are uh, 0.01 of a percent that's uh, right hardly detectable at all um but we have seen levels in you know in some of the best lab analytical results in the world globally which unfortunately is still higher than what we have here in australia in in the commercial labs that that's moving on and and as the demand increases for those really, really comprehensive analytical results, the labs will come on board. Uh, but we can see individual terpenes sometimes at two, perhaps even three percent. Yeah. But generally, we're we're looking at two to three percent in total, and individual terpenes being around the one point something. And so when you, you know, comparatively, the reason that they've sort of taken a backseat is people are going for the low-hanging fruit. So if you were to do a comparison on a, a spectrographic expression or, or representation, let's say, for example, you might have THC or THCA sitting there at 20%. Yeah. And then you've got all of these other hundred, hundreds of compounds all added together that make up 2%. That's right. So that's why they're not as interesting. They're a lot harder to work with. They're a lot harder to find. You're getting tiny little microscopic pieces of them to do any, you know, a bulk sort of scientific experiment with them. 
you need you need a fair bit of it. Yeah. So it's easy, much easier to grab to grab the higher ones, which is your THC and your CBD, your CBN, your cannabigerol. Not so much, starting to get smaller and smaller. But when you look at a at a spectrograph of cannabis, you see these little ripples all the way along, and then this bang, this big expression of THC, or bang, this big expression of CBD. And that's why, to date, that's all most people are talking about. Yeah, and as as science moves on, we will see combinations of, of not that they're new cannabinoids, but cannabinoids where there's a lot more newly established attention on them. Yeah. And that's where the real, when people talk about the entourage, the entourage that science does support is really the entourage of different cannabinoids within the cannabinoid profile. So this idea of, of terpen, terpenes or terpenoids contributing to the chemical, natural chemical entourage, um, it's still not validated. But certainly what we are seeing, so there's that sensory aspect. So for some people, whether they're consuming orally or in other ways, that can be an aspect to their experience. And the way that we describe that in science, we call that the organoleptic effect, which is basically just a sciencey word for saying the sensory effect. How? What, yeah. What about this idea that myrcene is is the thing that's creating the sedative effect? Yes. So there have there have been some studies on that, but again, I will be waiting until I see these results replicated and replicated and replicated again, 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 successfully. When we have the body of evidence, that's when I will tend to make those statements, agree with those studies. So peer-reviewed, unbiased, double-blind, placebo-controlled. Clinical trials, yeah. Is absolutely the only way to prove it. That's the gold standard. And it's amazing, really, when you start looking into it, how bias works and how placebo works. Yes. Because you can get measurable effects from a placebo. Yes, there's placebo and nocebo. And nocebo, exactly. Yeah, so placebo is when I feel a positive effect, even though I haven't taken anything that should be causing that effect. And a nocebo is when I feel a negative effect, even though I haven't taken anything that should be causing that effect. Sure. One of the other things I just quickly wanted to talk about was the way that CBD and THC work together. We know they're the hero phyto compounds. Based on the way that the ECS works, what we're seeing from the science is that CBD has this counterweighting, this ameliorating effect on THC. So when you hear people talk about whole plant or entourage or synergistic effects, the idea that using the whole formulation, the whole plant, all of the compounds that appear in that plant as a complete formulation uh, really is starting to show the how the CB1 and the CB2, uh, CB2 receptors work together. So rather than THC having this psychotropic side effect and it running away from you, and again, that's part of the reason why people are having it recreationally, but medicinally, that to us, that's a side effect, something that we're trying to actually inhibit. We're finding that adding TH, uh, CBD at the same time blunts that peak and it gives you a more reduced 
psychotropic effect from the THC. So what it enables you to do from a medicinal perspective is, is get the medicinal impact of the THC because it is medicine. Some people are saying, oh, that's the one that, you know, isn't medicine. It's CBD that's medicine. It's not THC. No, they're both medicine. They're acting on different receptors in different ways. And they work together really well is the point. And, and the body ha has two very distinct and bespoke receptors so that it can figure out how to how to use that balance so by using both receptors when you're applying cannabis as a medicine the ECS has a, a measured response and an expected response it's waiting for those compounds it's like ah i can see some cannabidiol i can see some delta 9 tetrahydrocannabinol maybe it doesn't know what they're called Yes, We're not I would say so. Yeah. The consciousness of the receptors, that's for another episode. But certainly it knows what to do. Exactly. And we talk about this in the ECS episode as being from the Emil Fisher uh, lock and key principle. That's why they know what to do. Yes. But certainly they are both medicines. This is the important salient point. And your ECS is ready to have a dose of, of THC and CBD at the same time. And what we're finding, what I'm finding from the research is that it's producing some really good results yeah. when it's combined. Yeah. So we, who, can you explain who it's pro providing uh, So let's for? say just a standard clinical trial where they have measured, I think one of the most recent ones that I saw was autism and particularly children with autism. And what they were doing was they were actually trying to treat the epilepsy in these kids. And they found that autism actually is quite commonly associated with these kids that have got this chronic epilepsy, Dravet syndrome. So they found that while they were measuring the effect of the medicine against the epilepsy, they were noticing a measured improvement in the autistic spectrum as well, in the conditions that surround autism, so mood, sleep, all of the stuff that wasn't related to, to epilepsy. And then they went and had a look and went, oh, we're seeing all of these other improvements. Actually, we can now diagnose this child as also having autism and we're seeing all of these measured results. So what they do is they, they use isolated compounds because you, you really want to avoid, if you can, giving a kid THC if you don't need to because of that side effect. So let's try just with CBD. So they tried with CBD and they measured the results. They went, okay, here's our results. And ultimately, they, they went through a few different formulations and they found that when they had a combination, a whole plant with a little bit of THC in it, all of the, the standard deviations, the SDs, improved. Yeah. We don't know why yet, but we have observed that when we do this, we get this improved result. And I've been looking through, and we've actually got a researcher uh, doing it at the moment. A lot of the trials that I read where they say when we, when we use the whole plant, all of the compounds together, we see a, a, an improved outcome. Fantastic. So, so that's, it's an observation at the moment. We've got our ideas on what we think is going on, but it, we really need to pull it apart and, and put the science back together. Yeah, so I guess the key takeaway points there are this idea of psychotropic effect. How do combinations of cannabinoids work together? So that's the entourage of cannabinoids and the cannabinoid profile. 
Now, medicinally, THC and CBD can help each other and have a synergistic effect. Now, some people, there's a lot of misinformation in in this industry, and some people say that CBD is not psychoactive. Now, this really comes down to what do I mean by psychoactive? What do you mean by psychoactive? Because for me as a scientist, CBD is absolutely psychoactive. If I have anxiety and I take CBD and it helps me with my anxiety, well, to me, that's the definition of psychoactive. Sure. So we need to separate this idea of psychoactive from psychotropic. So people that take THC and they become intoxicated or inebriated or euphoric, that's a psychotropic effect. It's also a psychoactive effect, but it's very specifically a psychotropic effect. So CBD doesn't have a psychotropic effect, and combining it with THC can actually blunt the psychotropic effect of the THC. All right, guys, we've run out of time. Thank you very much for joining us for this episode. Like I said, I very much appreciate you taking the time to to listen to us. And please let us know in the comments if there's some questions that we didn't get around to answering or there's something you wanted more information on. We will be doing more episodes and we can certainly address those comments and concerns. And in particular, please feel free to... uh, direct some of your feedback towards Evan around if you're a plant lover, if you're a a taxol person, if you think that there's some ancient tribal uses that we are overlooking, we love to hear from you. Let us know. Thanks again. See you next time.